So, hello. Hello. Um, today's visit is in the studio of Roberto Fusco, who is an artist who comes from Italy originally. Indeed. And, and what else? Uh, from Rome specifically. And I came here hmm, 13 years ago, or even a little bit longer than that. And um, uh, I came here without like a, a major plan. Uh, things just sort of happened like, like they do in life. But um, yeah, if I can sort of back it up a little bit, basically my at least like stories that, um, well, I actually studied in Rome, although like I was a bit traveling for, uh, you know, doing my master thesis in one place uh, in Netherlands and Erasmus, I was in Norway. So I got a bit fascinated by the north of Europe. And, um, but what I studied was actually not art, but I studied electronic engineering in Rome, which is like a five years program, like what, it, what it's here, like a master of science in electronic engineering. And, um, and at that point I had very little sort of interest and uh, in doing arts. I was of course exposed to arts like many people do, but I don't come from a, like a family of artists. Like my mom used to be a, like a teacher of maths and physics. And uh, my dad uh, used to study physics. And uh, so very scientific minds. Basically. Very high chance for you to become an engineer. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I, what I really wanted at that point uh, when I was like 18, I had to choose like the university. Um, degree I wanted to pursue. Um, I was more interested actually in uh, math, like that was something that I got from my mom. I, I really sort of enjoyed that and I think now I get a bit of an understanding of why uh, I was into math. Um, but uh, I don't know, people gently pushed me towards this, uh, you know, do, do engineering, you'll do fine, you'll get a job and so forth, so forth. So yeah. that was the time. It was also like early 2000, so was this a bit uh, ICT booms, telecommunication, IT. Uh, I mean, it seemed that it was uh, the jobs, there would have been a lot of jobs after that. And I think that was the main concern, at least for my parents. And I wasn't really interested in anything specific. But what happened was that um, after, during the, like the university times, um, I got very much into electronic music. Uh, so even before doing arts of any kind or media arts like now, um, I was very interested in electronic music and I started, you know, with my friend just making beats like many people do. And, um, and I think that was the first exposure I had, the first time I was exposed to using um, digital technology to do something creative. Uh, so we made a few albums, we played together, but everything stayed within the realm of electronic music and just experimental things, but sound domain. Um, but then quite rapidly, I, you know, I started seeing a lot of uh, sort of uh, audiovisual uh, performances and things like that. So I think I, I got more open to this idea of combining different media, so not just sound. And uh, I was very impressed by the first audiovisual performances I saw, things like, you know, the first uh, Albanotto or Ikeda and these kinds of, uh, those, those artists that were working really together, audio and, uh, and visual. 
Um, so that's when I started getting interested also in uh, sort of programming, coding, and find ways of uh, uh, somehow augmenting or pairing sound composition also with visual composition. And I think from that onwards, I got much more involved in, in the arts. And then uh, I decided to quit my job in Rome, which I didn't like at all. Uh, and what I, was your job? What you my doing? job was, um, so I was 24. Um, so yeah, many years ago. And, uh, and basically I was in this company called uh, Terna, which is the equivalent of FinGrid. It's basically like a state-owned company that owns the uh, power grid of Italy. And I was in the IT department and I was dealing basically with the drawing processes that tells what people should do when. Uh, like, um, uh, it's sort of uh, strange now to verbalize it. Something along the line of project management. And I really didn't like that because, not because I don't like project management per se, which I think is very necessary, but because I was very young, inexperienced, I didn't know anything about the field. And suddenly you had to deal with people with a lot more experience than you, who have been working there for 20, 30 years. And definitely they don't want to hear anything from, you know, a young, mm kid, yeah. you know, fresh from university who was supposed to tell you what to do and stuff like that. Yeah. So that was a bit of an anomaly. Um, but then, so what I decided, I, I thought I wanted to give it a chance to be more like um, serious about this audiovisual business. And so I quit my job and that was a bit of a strong uh, decision. Um, and I went to Dublin to do this uh, master in music and media technologies, which was much more creative, much more uh, sort of art inclined. And there, there is where I studied the first, you know, programming languages, uh, node-based programming, uh, uh, electroacoustic compositions, a uh, bit of psychoacoustics as well. So it was also very much about the sound. These two years um, finished also with like, I can say the first group exhibition I was part of. So that was very nice. After that, you know, I met somebody there in, in, in Dublin. Um, and then uh, uh, it happened to be a Finnish woman, so I decided, okay, why not move into Finland? It's not too bad, probably. That's one of the two main reasons people move yeah, to Finland. Yes, I, yes, I probably the most common. It's uh, <laughs> such a cliche, the, the Italian man with the Finnish woman, I realized there is such a common story. Is it? Yeah, yeah, it's really not Italian special. Italian men and Finnish women? Woman, yes, oh, it's really not a special story. Okay. Uh, I thought, it I mean, on an individual level it is, but uh, statistically, really not uh, really the center of the Gaussian curve. It's really, really standard. Um, so I moved here and um, I didn't have much contact, but I was, uh, I, I knew somebody in uh, Taik, so in a media lab, and, uh, but then eventually ended up getting a research contract. Sorry, this is very long that I'm talking a bit too long about my background, but no, 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 no it's, it's okay. It's okay. Fine, okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, Don't think about the time. Okay. No, okay. We have time. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I got like, um, a research assistant position in, uh, Alto. There was this, uh, interesting project about interactive storytelling. Um, and I was part of that project. So I started being in this department of media technology and, uh, it was quite, uh, I had to learn quite much also there about 
programming and things like that and metadata and, st and stuff like that but it was quite like a pleasant job and then it became actually my doctoral degree i i didn't work with interactive storytelling my doctoral degree but it was quite natural to after the contract ended to stay in the same department with the same supervisor and do like a doctoral degree and this doctoral degree um was in interactive digital media as like an umbrella term but basically what i was interested in and it was i would say a little bit very much about human computer interaction so not very much art but much more about developing some interactive gadgets and then test them and do sort of experiment where you ask people how they feel and you try to somehow make sense of the experience they get out of this uh, uh, interactive situation. Um, but of course, at the same time, I was also like working with sound and visual, doing a bit of live performances. And uh, I think the, the first time maybe was in 2012, uh, I had the chance to do this residency in uh, Bergen for three months and there I made a, what I would consider a bit like my first piece piece like a video piece uh, it was two channel projection with this interactive floor that will create the sound of different um, material coming from different landscapes where I've been during the year uh, and that was in Mu Gallery that's when I can say a little bit where the sort of artistic career started or anyway it was more shown to the public like in a gallery uh, mm. and and like that and now that happened 10 years ago and in the meantime i kept on uh, like doing the similar things and different things and uh, i worked as freelance and then i worked i was teaching a bit in alto in media lab and now i'm working kubatide academia in this small unit, which is called Art and Technology. I work together with this uh, artist and lecturer, Tuomo Rainio, and now we also have like a Art and Technology Lab, so a sort of fab lab where we also do digital fabrication. So that's uh, that's um, that's a bit uh, the that's story. Your that's your CV in a nutshell. The, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a bit the CV in a nutshell, exactly, exactly. Mm, yeah, yeah, and, and recently there was the Kuvankevat this year, the spring exhibition of yeah. the graduates of yeah. the academy. I, I saw that they have, in comparison to previous years, they, mm. there was more digital fabrication stuff there. Yeah, I would say it's definitely not, like this year, I think the, the fact that we moved to this new building, we are all together in the same place and we have a sh like a shared facility, although, you know, not like a five star uh, fab lab. But any anyway, uh, I, I think we are able, student gets like 24 hours access to, for instance, 3D printing. They have basically daily access to laser cutting and uh, 24 hours access to using electronics with the electronic workbenches. So, uh, we are also able to support them, uh, um, I think, on a daily basis with studio visit or just, uh, you know, courses and, and other ways. And of course, that's the nice part of the job, you know, when you actually can follow the work of a student from when uh, this person comes for the first time and pitch the idea. And then you actually see after, I don't know, six months or even longer than that, uh, what it becomes.
Mm. So I think that's something, probably that's the best part of the job, I would say, to see that really the artistic process. And in this type of job, I'm sure that your engineering background is very helpful. Yeah, I would say I would say it, it is, although um, that that's why now uh, I can come back with this idea that I was really into maths uh, because um, and physics in a way, because I think the the kind of electronic engineering I studied surprisingly was very non-practical, not hands on. Um, the things I was studying, especially in my specialization, was very much about like writing super long uh, formulas to model some phenomena and not much hands-on uh, like let's build a circuit or things like that. Uh -huh. All these kinds of knowledge I actually taught it myself because I, I needed it for my own work. Okay. So I would say from that time, the electronic engineering time, I think maybe what, what comes it's this a bit more general um, skills for problem solving, but the, the, the problems that I'm facing now, they are quite different from what I studied back then. And a lot comes from, you know, self-development, watching YouTube tutorials. Uh, the best and, teacher. Uh, and, uh, and, very, um, and it comes from projects. So it's not like a knowledge that it's, you just accumulate bottom up, but because you need it, you figure it out, then you expand it, you go back, you iterate, and then somehow you, you make it work. Yeah. So. Also, this is kind of a more structured mindset about how to do things, mm -hmm. because in, in, in the type of, of works that you do, I haven't seen all of your works, of course, but no. like from what I've seen, I think that there needs to be pretty you pretty structured process about yes. building. Yeah, that's that, that that's yeah, I I I think so. I think it's really hard to somehow find consistency in the working methods among the different projects, but of course there are many common points. I think very often I'm interested I see the piece a little bit like a system. Mm. So, um that helps me at certain point to think about the relations between the different elements. And it doesn't need to be necessarily about technology, but I think I see, I see an installation as a system where there is a relation going on. And um, in, when it then comes to actually, the, the moment that I can isolate these modules and these parts really helps me actually get the stuff done and put it on a timeline because time is very precious. So I, Nowadays, in the last years, that I have really little time with, uh, you know, um, kids and stuff like that, I need to treasure the time very much. So I really need, you know, one week before I need to think, okay, next week I need to get these ideas done, or mm. I need to think about this and make a decision about that. Mm. So it's um, unfortunate. Well, also fortunately, I need to give myself a lot of tasks I, I go through. I don't have a lot of time to just wander around yeah. hoping that things will just happen at the right moment. But of course, as we know, you don't decide when you get the idea, you don't decide when you get the intuition or the curiosity um, or the opportunity to do your work or to, you know, to, to see the piece in a way in, in, in your head. So that just happens and it happens due to many accidents and people around you. Um, but then once you have it, 
I think it helps this a bit system thinking to, to go through the different steps. So do you have a special process how you start doing some project or work? I would say it's um, maybe there are two um, kind of work that I do, um, like pieces that I've done just by myself. Uh, and then uh, in the, I would say in the last five, six years have been uh, very much collaborating with uh, my friend uh, Emma Felt, who lives in Huobio, and uh, also I've been working very much together with uh, Andrea Mancianti, who's a sound artist I actually share the studio with, together also with uh, Robin Ellis nowadays. Um, so I would say when uh, I work with other people, um, the process is very based on uh, sort of dialogue, uh, offering maybe the initial idea and then uh, let the other person work with the idea itself uh, and try to be open and not to, you know, not to be too defensive about your initial idea, but just mm. let it brew together. I think this, like collaboration goes a little bit in, in one way um, and we can talk about like collaboration, but in, then the pieces that I do by myself, I think it comes from some ideas just happens, they just appear in the sort of landscape of what you would like to do, that you get excited about it. Like I would say, that, for instance, in the last years, I'm very, very interested. Of course, I work with technology, but specifically now I'm interested in technology and uh, computation. So the ability that we have to make, you know, calculation and millions of calculation using hardware and software and programming. Um, how we can use computation, how computation is used to actually simulate and interpret phenomena, physical phenomena that are around us. That's something that fascinates me very much, this aspect of, um, which comes up in a way from science and nowadays it's also possible because computers are, you know, we have much more computation in our hand, it's actually possible to simulate and predict, predict phenomena that happens. It can be meteorological, it can be, you know, nu like nuclear warfare, it can be whatever, it can be, you know, computation in social media. But I'm interested in this aspect that by simulating and modeling reality, we are actually reducing it, we are transforming like reality and how this impacts our perception of the reality itself. So. I think this technology and computation, um, it's something I like to engage with to understand also what it does to me, like personally. So having, um, so just to be a bit more concrete, for instance, now I'm working uh, very much with the, um, data in the sense that um, data that can be used to somehow scientifically get an understanding of certain phenomena and at this point I'm working with data uh, that are provided by the Finnish Meteorological Institute. They study the, um, for instance, the behavior of uh, um, try to model like waves and in particular waves in the Baltic Sea. Uh, I was part in, of one project where we actually looked at some other data that were about the Baltic Sea, but now I, I wanted to focus on this idea of uh, using data, historical data, so data from the past, 
uh, to simulate a phenomena that I didn't witness myself, but somehow I can use computation to tell a story that has already passed, and it's the story of storms in, on, in the Baltic Sea. So that's the piece I'm working now. So I'm using all this data that um, are collected by a buoy that it's in the Baltic Sea, and they provide you know, every second or every minute characteristic about the waves, and the researcher used that to predict the state of the sea and also forecast the, the state of the sea. And, uh, How much is that uh, accurate, these kinds of simulations? Uh, that's also a very interesting thing to understand a bit the history of uh, this uh, uh, modeling, because uh, in a way, they, the math or the science behind it is a, has been available for quite some time. But of course, they are very strong approximation because the phenomena is so complex. That's why it's, in a way, it's so beautiful. It's so overwhelming in, in all its complexity. You can see a storm as a whole, you can see a wave as a whole, and then you can zoom in and see all the, almost go at the level of the particles. And of course, there is no way that you would be able to somehow simulate accurately that, or at least we are not there yet. But in the recent years, because they have the, much more powerful machine, they are able to somehow reduce the phenomena less and less, approximate it to something uh, quite close. What, what's and your take yeah. on the, the, the simulation theory of reality? That um, we are actually living uh, the simulation. Uh, That's very popular nowadays. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't, I mean, I'm a bit maybe, ag yeah, I'm quite agnostic towards that in the sense that uh, there is no way for us to figure that out. But I think what interests me that in that is the fact that, like the theories that I think are popular now about the fact that in a way our mind is basically moment by moment try like it constructs a model of reality and then the new sensory input that it receives um, might or not match with this model of reality so i think this aspect if that that is the simulation we are talking about i think it sort of makes sense to me i think we are constructing very like very much with our mind what's around us and uh, try to see how different like all the time is what we perceive from what we expect to happen. I think this is a sort of understanding, um, scientific understanding that makes uh, sense to me. I think that they're meaning more, almost like, like a, a matrix. Yeah, like the matrix. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that, um, I don't know. I maybe Of course, I know it, no way to test, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I would say, yeah, I don't know. It's, maybe there it's, Science fiction-wise, it's uh, kind of uh, entertaining, but uh, I don't know. There, there's maybe not so much that I can engage with, with that kind of thought. But I think definitely, I like this idea of some researchers who like study consciousness and things like that. This idea that we are a bit like a, almost like a rendering machine. Like it's almost like this game engine that it's running in our mind where what we see and what we experience, let's say vision, like we are basically just rendering all the time what we see, mm. but behind us, uh, we don't have a clue of what's behind us unless we actually render it. So we turn our face. So um, th there is definitely, in, in general, I, I think we know 
still very, very little, I would say, of uh, what's really going on. Like, um, and our senses are able to take just even even less than that. Like. Yeah, in, indeed. So uh, definitely, I mean, just across pieces, I mean, the, our the understanding of the world is probably completely different, and we will never know what is to be, mm. you know, another li living organism. So I think. Do you think uh, with such simulations that we can kind of get a good understanding one day? Like. I, I, I uh, would say I don't I don't think so because we are missing so much so much like now I also I don't think why computation is interesting to me it's also to basically understand uh, or work with what's not computable in a way like what is left mm. because definitely I don't believe that we are just like this uh, sort of computer program running all the time. I think there is there is way more that's going on that we cannot maybe verbalize um, that cannot be reduced to just, uh, you know, mm. some sort of software running. Uh, first of all, we would need a body for that, I would say, if we want to really like simulate. We mm. would need flashes, we would need a um, metabolism running, we would need a lot of things. Uh, so maybe in the end we'll just make another person <laughs> and then um, yes then we just made another person yeah. uh, so it wouldn't in a way the simulation would actually be like some sort of clone of ourselves, like another West human world instead yes. of the matrix yeah, exactly <laughs> but I, I think dealing like dealing with the, like working with this in a way if we think about the like the, the artistic process when you work with like data and you try to because I think the question now is like, what is the um, what is the difference maybe between like a scientist or a researcher working with data, and what would be the role of the artist mm. using this data? Um, and and I think there the, the the fact is that they are both in a way. I think I'm interested in in the knowledge that like working with this data artistically bring forth but it's definitely a non-scientific knowledge is actually a way for me to to share what I, what is the subjective interpretation i have of this data through the work that i'm doing rather than uh, try to find a universal and it universality should be, because if, if you only want to then it will become data visualization if, you, if you follow it completely precisely. strictly precisely yeah. precisely so i think you put yourself and you share like an intention in what kind of how those da that data becomes like a sort of material in a way, so that how you let it articulate itself, what it does, what emerges from that bit like clay, in a way, not, not so differently from this kind of more traditional kind of media. So you said that uh, currently you're working on something that is uh, connected to the waves in the yeah. Baltic Sea, the storm? Yes, the storm. So it's... Um, so it, the, the, um, the piece is part of, uh, it's actually a collaboration with my friend uh, Emma Felt and uh, we are making, it's a group exhibition and we are doing like a, creating this installation or this space inside the group exhibition. So there are different elements, so there is a system going on also there, but um, there's going to be um, uh, like using this data um, from this uh, um, specific event that happened in the Baltic Sea, these two storms, uh, one uh, called Rafael, was called Rafael, the other one was called Toini, 
in 2004 and 2017, I believe. Uh, because of those, uh, we actually had richer data we would work with, although there are historical data also of previous storms, like in, also in the 90s. But I focused on those two, so I basically just created a computer program that using this data will uh, simulate and visualize this, these waves. I tried to be the very more as, as, a, uh, as physically grounded as possible. Like, uh, so I interviewed this researcher, I asked, okay, but what does this mean? What does this um, you know, spread function mean and stuff like that? And we got very nerdy about this thing. Uh, so there, that's where the electronic engineering background uh, like was K useful. Yeah, in. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so part of the work is really like using this data. And I also asked them, do you have visualization? Like, do you do visualization of those things? They said, no, actually, no. We just have the data and we run our simulation. So numbers comes in, numbers comes out, and that's it. So I was already a bit surprised that they didn't have the, felt this need of somehow seeing what what those numbers Yeah, imagine were. how those people perceive the world, it is just the numbers, numbers. Exactly. I, I, I guess uh, I would argue that probably they see it somehow, but maybe in their own way that we don't understand it because mm, they are so yeah, familiar. Yeah. It's so meaningful probably that, you know, decimal points in that number. So they can appreciate those differences, although they are not maybe able to draw it or to uh, make it into like a visual scene. Um, so I, I made this simulation and then uh, that really, I think that was an interesting part for me because I tried to really see, okay, what does this uh, number stands for? Like how, how it reflects on the shape of this wave? Is this storm gonna look very, are the waves gonna be very messy, very high, very regular? So I would really, so the, the, the simulation I made, it's really tries to show that. Um, and I was a bit fascinated in, I don't have a picture of that event, but somehow I would almost put myself back in time and take a picture, a snapshot of that. I think that was the gesture I was after. But anyway, these um, images this, um, of the storm will be then presented as large laser engravings on paper on two walls. There's gonna be um, like a small uh, um, sort of kinetic light element in the center of the room, like a small lighthouse that I built um, that will basically in the dark room, the light beam will uh, illuminate the, the paper so that you will see glances of this storm that are still, but in a way they, with the light moving, hopefully they, they get, they, they acquire this sense of liveliness, of course. Mm. Um, and so there won't be any video? There the won't be any storm. video. Yeah, exactly. So the initially, of course, I also worked like the simulation allows me to, I, I can see a video when I work with that. Yeah. Uh, but, and that also, it's a bit of an accident in the sense that once I knew about the space and the, the fact that it's a group exhibition, so, you know, you need to negotiate space, sound, mm. uh, How illumination. How many people is it? Uh, Nine. Nine. Oh. Yeah. So it's a lot. As quite you know, the space few. it's 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 gonna be quite packed. Some are a bit small. Some are like on a screen. Uh, some are uh, like 
mm, sort of mixed media work. Yeah, of course. It's um, in uh, Galleria Ha in Suomenlin. It opens the 5th of July. So. And how long is it gonna? Be until there? the end of the month, and end, end of, of July. July. So it's okay. for it's for that it's for that month. Uh, yeah. So the whole exhibition it's uh, we titled um, "Sweet Water, Rough Water." So all the pieces somehow they are different uh, interpretation or personal encounters like with water and the sea, um, and they are uh, articulated through different like art forms and uh, so I think it's a very it's kind of nice rich uh, and quite accessible also exhibition because I think it can it's relatable to to many people like the the subject and as I was saying it's a collaboration in the sense that there is going to be also a soundscape uh, in the in the installation and that is actually made by Emma uh, um, basically Oftentimes when we work together and we have done many pieces together, there is also this, um, of course there is a you know, dialogue in the sense that we just discuss the idea and the ideas just get a bit uh, corrupted by each other. Uh, so or that developed. You no, know, well, I also <laughs> like this idea that in a way you lose something. I, I mean, the, the idea, it, it mutates in a way. And of yeah. course it's for, the, it's for good, but it can also a little bit like a violent thing. Like it's not mm. like a... It's not just a you know Walt Disney story of ideas that develop. Like I, I think yeah, they, yeah. They, there are tensions, there are things, there is no conflicts, but there, I think the, the idea really gets strongly um, manipulated going back and forth, which which I think is perfectly fine. So oftentimes this dialogue also happens by us exchanging, for instance, like like sound recordings, and um, often we have been working with the sound of drawings. Um, so for this piece, she actually uh, looked at the image I created through this simulation and she started just imagining the sound that that storm could have been. Um, so she was she just like basically drawing those waves, like mm. or in a way, either the wave itself or this, trying to create through drawing gesture the sound that that store would make. It was very beautiful when I received these files that by themselves, uh, of course, they sound like drawing sounds, like now they are very recognizable because I've been working with them. But then uh, just by editing, layering and composing, I would really feel uh, this actually sense of complexity and uh, harshness that might come if you actually listen to the sound of a storm. So there was this um, really like beautiful moment when I was with the headphones and I sent a text and I said, you should be here because this sounds amazing. Like, uh, uh, and I think that's also very nice when you collaborate, if you're really sort of, you can be in this um, very open-minded state when it's okay that things can change and it's not just about you. If you are happy with that, I think you have much m many more surprising and uh, wondering moment where you're really like oh my god this thing is actually happening now and it's that's the reason why we're doing what we are doing in a way i think that happens so much more often when you are in dialogue with somebody else and you work with somebody else and not just within yourself where you know you need to very often justify also to yourself why you're doing the things you are doing so i i also enjoy very much this um, co-creative process do you have a preference to work alone or with somebody else or does it mm, 
I, I think it depends. Uh, probably there are certain like ideas uh, that I want to pursue. Either I care too much about it or I don't think other people would care about it as much as I do. Uh, it's a bit too personal somehow the way I want to accomplish the project. So I'm not sort of willing of uh, um, reopening the idea. Like I want to walk through the idea mm. just by myself. Um, but more often than not in the last years, I'm actually doing work with other people. So um, it happened. You know, a bit by accident, I always find myself actually working with other people because, of course, I like it. Is it hard to find uh, the right people to work with? Or have you, have you worked with other people and then it was like just not going? Yes, yes. Of course, I'm not going to say which few. Yeah, no, no, yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. going to ask you. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's fine. no. I think it's, it's incredibly difficult to find uh, people you can work with uh, like sustainably. Because I don't think you can just meet somebody and in a very tactical way, just make a piece, uh, you know, mm. you open the book, make the thing together, you close the book, job done. I, I think the best pieces there are the one that came because there is a mutual interest, there is a relationship that maybe starts from before. I, I think you need to dig a little bit mm. quite, uh, quite deep to make a good work, I would say, to have a good dialogue, uh, to, to trust each other, um, to uh, sort of uh, be in this state of openness. Like we, I don't think we can really be just open to anybody uh, at all times. So I think yeah. you, so it is hard. And in the past I've done collaboration that they were really nice, but they, they closed within sort of one cycle. But the, um, the one I have now, they've been going on for a very long time. Like with them for a very long time, with Andrea, same since 2016. We have been um, doing like audiovisual uh, concerts. And of course, that comes from, you know, a friendship. We know each other very well. We know how to take each other. Um, also, when it's very stressful, you need to meet the deadlines and so forth. So I, I think it's... Um, and also you need to have common interests that you have. I think you need to share at certain level some processes and also you need to have a bit similar artistic intentions. Like you, you need to, your energies need to be aligned, I think, in, in uh, quite much in order to do good work and, mm. and also have a pleasant experience of working together. So that, I mean, uh, I'm sure that that reflects <laughs> afterwards in the work. Yes. If it, if it wasn't pleasant. Ab absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think it's also, you can at times distance your, yourself from your work because there is the other person. Like, um, so you can also see it a little bit from far and then get back to the work. Um, you can have weak moments like in, in, during the process because there is another person that might help you out with that. So I think that's positive. I would say very practically the scale of the works. I think there are certain like installation that I did by myself and nowadays I wouldn't even try to do those by myself. Like I would really like to do it together with with like with a partner or a group of people because I feel that in order to realize that at the level, at the scale, uh, at the depth I would like, I think I would, I would need people around me.
to do it, especially like for, you know, media, inst media installation that have a lot of components and things like that. Yeah, uh, there was this uh, slogan I remember from somewhere, I, I don't know where from, but like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. that's I, I think it it's not by chance that a lot of the um, I mean good works is also done by like studios and uh, so of course then there is the problem of who puts the name authorship. or the authorship <laughs> and things like that because of course I'm all I've also participated in project where I wasn't the artist but I just contributed to the project it seems it's very sort of flat democratic uh, um, structure but actually everything pushes towards a model where there is the artist and uh, you know people around it um, it's um that happens very often um so i'm not super inclined nowadays to actually work for other artists although i've done it in the past because you know pays the rent and stuff like that but um i I think what I enjoy the most is where you actually agree, you, you all together put the ideas there, put the work there, and you work as a team, as a group, and yeah, I, it's I a guess collective. you just negotiate these things in the beginning, and yeah, then it's clear. That's, it is true. I mean, on paper, this is this is you are right. The thing is that it's very hard um, if an artist asks another artist to do work for them. Um, your contribution doesn't it's very hard to draw the line of uh, um, to which to which extent you have given artistic contribution to the piece or you have given another kind of supporting mm. contribution it's really hard i think in many works i've done to sort of draw that line so but is that because the other artist i mean if if the other artist initiates this okay uh, i mm. need this thing done can you help me with this yeah is it because they don't know exactly what they want to achieve? Is it? Yeah, be, be, because of because I think the um, especially when you work with technology, it's if you cannot do it yourself, uh, I don't think you have really a concrete idea of what you want to do. You might have an idea, but you don't have uh, uh, really the piece mm. in uh, in your mind. So there is actually a lot of co-creation going on. And sometimes it's very balanced. Sometimes you just give uh, a very marginal contribution, just like a technical contribution. But in many situations, I think the, the line is very blurry okay. because you're not saying, hey, can you make a copy of this sculpture for me and do it as accurately as possible? Mm. Like, or can you 3D print this for me? I, I think it's a, it's a little bit more articulated than, than that. So it's hard beforehand to, you can say your name is not going to be there, like that you can decide or things like that. But then the work in itself, it's very hard beforehand to exactly say what your work will contain and what will not contain. Because Anyway, it's an artwork. Things will change. Decisions will be made during the process. Some are technical, some are um, sort of very trivial, some are more design ideas, some are really artistic decisions you take together. So I think it's quite difficult at times. So ideally, you would just have a group, like a collective of, of kind, and mm. you decide to sort of just co-create and be like one entity together rather than, you know, just one. Yeah. 
Have you been part of a collective of some sort or are you? No, no, no. Maybe exactly for this reason, there always been like collaboration of people asking me to collaborate, be part of some groups, but they're not true. There are these horrible background sounds. I'm a little worried. Are they going to come in? (laughs) I hope not. But anyway, sorry. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So not, not, we haven't really, I, I thought we, I think we thought about it with Andrea do maybe at a certain point we would do like a collective, but at the moment we just, you know, we are just a, a duo of artists that do work together. And with Emma, when we do work, our names are there. And when it's another project, yeah. my name and others are there. But there is nothing like structured and long term. Yeah, I guess say. if you didn't need it, why, why bother? Um, no, no, I, I, I think. I think as the idea of the studio is really nice because it will allow for bigger projects uh, and also planning maybe more in advance your works because you would get maybe like larger works, larger commissions or things like that if you work like as a collective. But yeah, we haven't gone in that direction yet. Oh yeah, planning for future works. That's something I'm a little bit struggling with because here it's i feel like it's kind of a must that you need to plan at least one year ahead yes and sometimes even more than that our time is a bit um ticking according to the grants so like uh, i think mm, there is a little bit yeah I, I i feel well yeah what i feel of course is that you know that you're gonna try to target these uh, grantees and this foundation and stuff like that and by then you need to have the new idea uh, with a with a good plan, so that you you would. Um, but what happens in a case where your interest is no longer there a year after? You know, mm. you were interested in something, you applied, okay, maybe you got funding for it, and then you start doing, but you're completely in a different theme already. Mm. I th- well, I think I would say for me to make a piece or anyway start thinking like a new project like a new theme like this this about the waves uh, because now it's about the storm and then it will be be more like real-time visualization of data um, of similar data but um, on uh, on the Baltic Sea I think it takes uh, at least two years to sort of in a way from the moment I start thinking about something and the moment actually I have uh, something presentable to to the public. So for me, I think two years so far has been a little bit the time when it starts and when uh, it can be somehow ready to be shown to the Mm. public. So of course, yeah, it depends on the project. Yes, yeah. So oftentimes you, I actually don't have something new every year. Like I, I rather just stick to the same thing that I was trying Mm. to do before. Because I need to be in that, um, uh, I need a bit more time to research and to do and, and to experiment with stuff. Um, but I, I think there is this push. Uh, um, sometimes you feel a little bit in this, uh, you know. Hamster wheel. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Okay, so now, now it's approaching the deadline. Okay, so let's come up with an idea. Let's make a plan. Ta, ta, ta. And the reality of things is that maybe you're just working about something or you're thinking about something or you're continuing something 
uh, you have been doing for a while. So, uh, not not it's of course it's it's not very comparable, I would say. But still, it's um, it helps, of course. Oh, I wanted to ask you about this uh, work with the storm. Is the is the data you're using open, or do you have to go talk with the people so they give you? The so the the um, the data are open, um, but they are very um, they are very reduced in the in the sense that they just tell you something that it's very generic. They tell you about the maximum wave height at, at that moment, and it's every 10 minutes or something like that. But let's say it's okay that to have it every, every 10 minutes. They tell you about how fast the wave was at that point um, and um, how messy was the, like the um, um, sea condition at that point. So you basically are playing just with four or five numbers. Uh -huh. uh, to um, somehow give uh, the flesh to such a complex phenomenon. So also w that's why I was talking about this, you know, super reduction of, uh, of data, like that you want to model something, uh, but in your hands you are actually, um, you, you are left with very little information to, to imagine something so complex. So. This, those are available, everybody can download it. Um, and they're also in real time from different places. But then uh, clearly uh, it wasn't enough, uh, or it was uh, for me at least. Uh, so I contacted the researcher um, that is actually um, sort of the expert in Finland about wave modeling. Uh, so it was very nice to you know, it was so kind to actually answer, find the time for sort of an interview or anyway, like um, an online meeting uh, and a bit also explain me, you know, what's the what's this field about? What what does he do? What's the and my first question was, OK, but before computers, how were, how were you doing all those things like like how back in time do you have logbooks about all this? And so we started talking also a little bit about the the history of modeling of uh, ocean waves or sea waves. So I, th I think that, that that got me very inspired about the field, which is quite recent in a way, like compared to other fields of uh, sort of, of physics. Do you have certain themes in your work that you could pinpoint? I think now looking back about maybe the last five years, so to say, because I always say that, you know, I work with technology and my work is also about the technology that, that I use. Um, but I started using like technology because I was excited to use it as a tool uh, to create something extremely complex, like when I was referring, for instance, to visuals for sound and stuff like that. I was fascinated by the complexity and the real timeness, like generate something in the moment that it's very complex. And I thought, so I was using digital media like as a tool, uh, but I think now I'm very fascinated by comparing that kind of uh, um, engineered complexity uh, just oppose it with the complexity that comes from uh, the physical world, from materials. 
So I think now there are these two forces or two things going on, like trying to explore complexity of phenomena by simulation with computation and then um, showing them together with uh, or paired with some like material elements. So um, using, for instance, some hardware, um, for instance, like in this exhibition, building this small lighthouse uh, uh, using like papers, like what Emma uh, is doing, like building this like sculpture made of paper, um, engraving the paper. So exploring the complexity that comes out when you mix uh, digital processes and analog processes together. I think that's one, one of the recurring themes that um, has been in the last years. And for instance, in pieces like uh, the one we had in Manta um, Art Festival, like two years ago, which then we had also in, uh, in Cuopio, um, there it was really literally we work with this uh, robotic arm, industrial robotic arm, and the idea was to create a choreography for this robotic arm, which is extremely, extremely exact, like it repeats itself really with a lot of precision. So it can move in a very beautiful or very robotic way, but in a very exact manner. But using that uh, very repeatable process, very in, in sort of scripted to activate a process that is very messy. So what this robotic arm was doing was actually shaking this uh, box full of sand. And um, the, the sound that this uh, operation was doing was used like to create the soundscape for the exhibition. And um, also the visual were created started by this camera which was mounted on, on the robotic arm so that it could see from very close what was inside this box. So in a way it was almost like comparing this proce process that it's very chance-based, it's full of accidents, but activated by something that is very, very exact. The theme there was very much how we make sense of uh, events and phenomena that appears very accidental, very chance-based. And now as human, we, we manage to make sense of those. So I think this element of different forms of complexity and discovering a bit the, the agency of uh, um, materials by themselves or when maybe activated or entering in processes where there is also computation involved, where it's something that it's very controlled, very engineered, very exact, like like so in a computer code. To what extent do you give the, the, um, the, the, the machine that agency? Quite much in the sense that when you, this robotic arm, clearly um, you discover that although there is like a um, software that you can program to make this movement, the movement, the sound, um, the, the characteristic of this, uh, what it's written on the computer program, it's just, uh, like the the script for anyway almost for an actor but in this case like it's this machine to perform this thing and then you face when you work with it all the constraint all the um, particular aspect that uh, that piece of hardware that bunch of motors and different materials uh, offer to you so i think immediately a work that was very much in your head, like, 
okay, I want to have a robotic arm shaking sounds. Immediately when you get to that point, um, suddenly it leads you to different direction because you discover how things you couldn't predict, things that come from the complexity of all these materials, where they lead you rather than you just envisioning all the piece by itself. So I think also there it's almost like creating a little scene, a little set for yourself, uh, like a sandbox, quite literally in that sense, and then start playing with it and see where it leads. Although the sound is created by, you know, a computer program that modifies the original sounds picked by the microphone, and also, and even, even if the visuals, they are created with a computer program that manipulates the image from the camera, the initial stimulus, the material that gets processed, comes from the material itself. So it doesn't, it cannot be coded, it cannot be completely predicted. Like the initial, the energy that is there, it doesn't come from the computer program, but it comes from this action, this movement, something mm. that it's, like that it's a phenomenon that we experience, like, like first person, that it, so it's not in the, on the computational side of things. In the program itself, are you, leaving some space for also for randomness? A little bit. I think in that case, uh, the concept was a bit that there was like a script or anyway, a timeline for the movement of the robotic arm. So there is like a choreography that lasts a certain amount of time. Also in the programming of the visual, I had uh, a structure for the piece. So mm -hmm. like a timeline, uh, a different sort of presets that gets activated at certain moments. But of course there is also a lot of movements that are there in the, that are coded in the visual, they actually come from uh, this. Maybe gets a bit technical, but n noise, uh, uh, sort of um, generated noise in the in the code itself. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, a lot of time, but this is almost like a technique that is used in computer graphics. It's uh, that people often use so-called pearly noise or simplex noise. Like anyway textures that are noisy but also organic uh, that somehow also there they approximate or they try to mimic textures and um, or movement or anyway characteristic that we find uh, in the physical world and we can relate to there is always a little bit of noise basically in, mm. in the different parts of this thing but i would say most of the agency is actually at the level of the of the physical, of the, of the matter that it's in movement in, in that piece. In another piece, for instance, I have this, um, which is called Ossa. It was in Lux Helsinki two years ago. There are two tables with animal bones put on top, mm -hmm. electronically controlled ra like rails, like sort of dolly, almost like a small dolly uh, camera because on top they have like a, also a camera and a light and they are just going back and forth. There are projections where you actually see what this camera sees. So you see these bones, this uh, like on top of these bones that, uh, that are orderly put on the tables. And then uh, there is the material, there, is, there are these electronically controlled rails, which also go according to a timeline. But of, and okay, another big element of the piece is that there is a sensor that actually, when you enter in, inside the installation, capture like a silhouette of yourself, and then you see yourself uh, uh, as um, made of all these bones that you have seen on the tables, the very same bones. So it's a 
it's a piece to sort of create this moment of um, closeness between you visitor of the installation and this uh, um, you know inanimate objects they belong they were part of like of a post anime post anime <laughs> yes li li exactly of a living uh, living being but then uh, the sound they make and the way they move it's very specific to that like rail to those motors so there are a lot of again mm. th there are a lot of like decisions or non-decision like things that happen that are due to the fact that that code needs to become a physical phenomenon in order for us to 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 be experienced so there i don't think there is anything that it's in a way purely digital like if it can be experienced it cannot be like it doesn't stay just at the level of computation or at the level of or computation can be also without digital but things cannot stay r completely digital uh, if we want to be able to experience them so the more you actually involve all this process and inclusion of materials and matters the more they get transformed by those so even the presence of a motor or a rail or the sound that they make they, um, as a contribution as an effect in the piece itself and in that piece itself actually the sound it's also made with the sound of these motors and these rails at a certain point there is this drone that starts and it, it's basically just an amplification of the sound that the rails make when they go back and forth what's your take on on ai now and the use of it and have you have you tried it in some yeah work or? yeah um i did last year we we had this piece in um, anti-festival anti in, uh, in Kuopio uh, that was, um, was part of a larger project but at least the, the part I, I worked with, with um, Emma and uh, Anna Maria was we made this sound walk. This project was, is about and it's still running. It's based on workshop with uh, 60 years old plus uh, groups and it's about envisioning the future of your city like in 100 years so when you are most likely not going to be there not just by sort of answering questionnaires or stuff like that but doing every week embodied practice practices that are about you know sound walk listening drawing drawing the sound of the city practices that are not language based but somehow that lets you attune with the city and lets you somehow think about what it's important for you in the city, what you would like to preserve in the future and stuff like that. Anyway, this is the umbrella project. What we did was this sound walk where what we did, we at the end of one year of this workshop, they interviewed all the participants of this workshop, all women, and, um, and we asked questions about, you know, how, how will the city, how will Kuopio sound like in 100 years? What, what, what kind of words are you going to hear? Um, what places will still exist and what will, will disappear? What's going to be like the, what kind of political uh, form of government there would be? What would be the economical system? Will there be borders? Will you hear strange languages? Um, so we asked a lot of questions, some, you know, sort of very simple, very generic something a little bit more personal and then what what i did i collected all these uh, interviews and use it as a data set to actually train 
uh, at that point was uh, GPT-3. And I gave like um, a voice to it, this uh, like AI generated voice, a voice of a kid. And so I started editing the parts and tried to create this very speculative dialogue between them uh -huh. and uh, this kid. And then you would go to different places in Quobio with this, uh, I built some pirate radios, which I put in different places. You would go with your FM radio. And when you're close enough, you start hearing this sort of dialogue. And, and they decided the different spots. So th those were all spots that somehow were mentioned. So that was uh, my probably, yeah, my closest contact with, uh, you know, using um, this um, like, deep learning uh, like language model that nowadays are very very popular and the reason why i wanted to do that it was very much actually engaging with the technology like for like first person understanding how a data set that actually i control so not just you know relying or something pre-trained what comes up after you have trained with your own data set. Like I was very curious, am I gonna get something that it's a bit like just a mashup of everything that gets said? Um, am I gonna hear something surprising? Am I gonna hear just on, only what is in common among the, all those people? So that was maybe one of the research question I was very interested when I was doing that. I wanted to really understand by using it what, what this, te this technology can do. Um, and what did it do? It was a little bit um, repetitive in the sense that it would generate pretty mm. like after a while very similar things. Also because um, you need to consider that that's a large, not as large as ChatGPT, but large model that is pre-trained. So has been already studying a lot, a lot. Um, and then you are just fine-tuning so-called. So you are just putting, training the last layers of this huge, gigantic neural network that builds the, the language model. So the data set that you give is actually very small. It's very hard to actually produce a very, very mm. big... How many interviews did you have? Uh, we, we had um, 10 interviews, two hours long. So mm. it's quite, I mean, it's quite much from our work in a way, like, and it was, yeah. it's a lot of text, but still it's not a massive it's amount yeah, of it's text. Yeah, too many different exactly. opinions. Exactly, exactly. So what I did is that, uh, mm, although some, some answers were making sense, and maybe by chance some combination of answers were actually interesting, I decided to spice it up a little bit. So what I did, uh, I, mm, I thought it would be nice to actually find uh, some book or uh, like literally genre that would uh, oh somebody's calling you yeah, okay just no 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 i don't need to i don't need to answer but i i wanted to stop it because otherwise we hear the vibration okay i guess um yes i wanted to find that because of course often times with this interview with these interviews um the problem is that you might easily end up portraying like a very sort of dystopian future. Like when you envision the future, there is always like this, if you see all the kind of movies that we have nowadays or the, or the series that Especially are Especially when you ask older people, I feel like older people tend to be more... Uh, more into this... Pessimistic, uh, pessimistic about the future. Yeah, it, uh, it could, it could be. But in, at the same time also, like in the younger generation, um, 
than me and also you what is popular on Netflix or HBO like we have this uh, Last of Us kind of things mm-hmm. like post-apocalyptic scenarios they are still very popular and um, so I wanted to search for a, a little bit an alternative to this utopia versus uh, dystopia kind of dichotomy and I found this um, like genre of literature which is called solar punk which is this idea that as humans we made it like somehow like we you know we exist in the future uh-huh. we found a way um, so now it's it's a matter of you know what kind of civilization we want to build now that we have made it it's almost which I think it's a I'm very simplifying this but I think it's a very interesting perspective because it allows you to speculate not be afraid of the future not be techno optimistic about it but to say if we make it what would you like like what what mm. what is going what do you want to be what is your position that you want to assume and i think that's it's a very interesting experiment thought process to go through and the book in particular um that i used is called the psalm a psalm for the wild built by this Becky Chalmers and it's a very cute story it's a very nice book very I recommend it to your uh, audience um, and it's basically there is this uh, uh, priest of a religion that it's not a religion that we know in the future um, it's a monk actually it's a monk that their task is to uh, make tea for people so that's that's basically what they do in, in their life make tea for people and talk and people are free to just come and talk and talk about whatever they want so it's a bit of a sort of tea maker tea expert analyst if you want kind of uh, person so this uh, tea maker realizes that uh, it's really not uh, what they want to do it's a it's a day them um and um while uh, they are a bit on a sort of existential crisis like uh, i don't know what i want to do uh, they found themselves uh, a little bit in a forest and suddenly there is this incredible encounter between them and a robot and the interesting thing is that in this world in the fictional world robots were living together with humans for a very long time so humans built robots and robots were very assistive and they helped a lot humans to do a lot of things but surprise surprise at certain point they become um, sentient and uh, yes that's a bit of a cliche but then what happens is that uh, humans were so uh, sort of wise or you know they got touched so much by, by them that they decided at that point uh, to let the robots free and sign actually a document saying that from now on you are free. You are, you know, we built you, but you are now just free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably it's not going to happen. <laughs> and then the robot, so, and they invite them, you can, you know, you can live with us, you can do what you want, you are free, you can be like us. And then they decided, the robots decide, since you built us, uh, it, would, it wouldn't be proper, it would be strange to actually live 
together with you, we need to find our own space. And so they disappear. And then for hundreds of years, there is no contact anymore between human and robots. So this encounter with the robot is, uh, you know, one in a lifetime kind of experience. And so it's this story of uh, traveling together, discovering each other, like exchanging funny, you know, conversation, because of course you have very different uh, consciousness at, at place, but this robot has some sort of consciousness, although different from the one that the monk has. It's a very nice book um, where they, they sort of become friends. So very cute. Uh, so I use this uh, book because it, it has a lot of descriptions also on how the cities of the future or the village of the future would look like how the highway would look like, what would be the square, the main square of the village, what kind of technology are people using in the future that it's sustainable, that it doesn't harm the environment and stuff like that. And that was more interesting because it was intertwined nicely with what these um, women from the interviews were saying. So the, the GPT-3 was very useful assisting me in actually creating this fictional dialogue. But okay, this was long story sh short, is that I think it's extremely interesting to, um, of course, follow very closely what's going on with AI for the societal impact that will have on us. From an artistic standpoint, I'm not very interested in uh, what is the most popular thing nowadays, like sort of image generation with AI, like using text prompt to like create images. It's, it's just something that I think it's a um, fun way to spend 10 minutes, but it's not something that I'm excited to incorporate in, in uh, my processes. But I would like to see art that it uses and it's at the same time critical about as a critical sort of perspective towards the impact that AI technology might have in our life. I'm interested in technology because I think it's what really one of the biggest drivers of changes in society of our generation or past and future. Sort of, we are mutating <laughs> with technology, like, and we don't, I mean, I'm not even talking about you know, prosthetics or stuff like that. I think, you know, with um, like communication technology, like internet and then social media and now AI, I think it's, we are just part of this massive experiment that somehow we didn't sign for. And um, it's really changing also, you know, way we think and what's important how we pay attention to things. It's really modifying us. I'm interested in AI from this perspective, so not strictly from artistic mm. like purpose. I, I recently read or saw a video about, uh, I mean, talking about the cow technologies is, is making us mutate, like mm. really directly. Uh, why our teeth are crooked and our ancestors' teeth, like uh, 10,000 years ago, they had very straight te teeth. Okay. What is that? The theory, they don't know, of course, yeah. for sure. But the theory is that when we started cooking, mm -hmm. we didn't need to chew anymore so hard. Yeah. And with time, that just uh, 
led to our jaws being smaller than those of, of, okay. the, of our ancestors. So yes. that's, but the teeth are still the same. Yes. Same amount, same size. Right. And that's why. And cooking is a sort of the, one of the first technologies, I guess, that people came up yeah, with. Yeah, before, even, yeah, before language, probably. Like, I think we had, we had to cook before or somehow. I think I'm concerned about, of course, in the case of social media, and uh, one exhibition I made was uh, specifically about that, um, about Facebook and, and such, uh, a technology that, it's, that supports attention um, economy. I think that's so that somehow steers our attention. Um, so it's not neutral because it's built just to somehow manipulate mm -hmm. our attention constantly. I think the, the impact of that in the way we actually pay attention to the world around us. I'm very curious to see what happens in the future, like a generation that somehow has started living completely immersed in that uh, social media reality and stuff like that. Not to talk about, you know, um, all the political implication of deep fakes and stuff like that, which of course go hand in hand with the new abilities of uh, ChatGPT to just produce, you know, text that mm. sometimes is very hard to recognize that it's actually not human made. And of course, at the very end, it is actually human-made in the sense that the data set comes from humans themselves. It's, it's like the, the meaning that it's there is a meaning that it's already in the data that we have been giving to ChatGPT. But of course, all, all, I think all these aspects are very uh, problematic and are very concerning. So uh, I think exactly I would like to see art that somehow has also a reflection on that rather than just using it sort of mm. as a tool uh, for helping imagination, like that kind of, like yeah. this uh, text uh, to image creation. Let's change completely. Yes. Poof, let's, yes. let's get back to the studio because studio, studio. this is, you know, big part of why this podcast is happening. Yep. Uh, to find out how artists are working. Yes. Where and uh, yes. Yeah, your studio is very cozy and and uh, big in the same time. Hmm. Yeah, it's a nice studio, I must say. Uh, yes, uh, or I mean, um, we moved here, hmm, when was it? Maybe three years ago or something like that uh, with, uh, my, with Andrea Mancianti. Before we were in Callio, actually, uh, close to Brachenkenta, the, like where there is the foot, like the ice ring or the football pitch over there. And that was much, um, it was nice, but we were actually like really like this stereotypical story that they wanted to make apartment out of it. So at a certain point, they just kicked all us out from the from those studios. Was it a building only with studios? It, yes, as far as I know, all the all the floors were just like studio, either like like design or artists mm. were painters and. Uh, recording studios in the basement so, so just you know just the normal yeah. thing uh, but uh, of course now there are apartments because it's uh, with that location probably yeah, they yeah, yeah. It, was, it was it was bound to happen it's just that when it happens to you you know it's like oh that's so strange but anyway then we so we moved here to uh, Royo Pelto and I think we were among the first one in this part of the building that got the space and now it there are quite a few artists here 
it's um, roughly this room uh, is uh, 50 square meters, approx. It is now shared with uh, Andrea and with uh, Robin Ellis, who's from printmaking, um, working both with analog techniques, but also using, you know, here we have some plotters, uh, like, uh, so using a little bit of uh, digitally um, drawing machine, drawing machine, exactly, drawing machine kind of things. While Andrea works very much with sound, uh, composition, playing several instruments. So this studio is a bit of a mix of practices in the sense that uh, Robin brings in this printmaking, uh, I would say, sort of fixed media, more like traditional printmaking, but a bit spiced up with the drawing machines. Andrea brings here also this uh, uh, musicianship uh, and sound making practice. So there is also a sound setup here that's very handy. And one part of the studio is mainly dedicated for playing. So it, it's left a little bit more empty, although a bit messy, but still as, as empty as possible. So that when he wants to play and like an instrument or record something or just try out uh, some new pieces or working with sound, you can do that in that part of the of the studio. So it's, it's a bit reserved for performance and rehearsal. And uh, I have uh, like a little desk over there uh, and uh, share with Andrea when we do rehearsal this part of the studio. Um, so that we can easily connect our instrument. He usually, play, usually plays electric guitar with laptop, so with electronics, and uh, I play very badly, but still uh, uh, with pleasure, uh, uh, electric cello that's over there, which we have a little bit customized. And the idea is that uh, we have a projector over there so that we can a bit see how the like an audiovisual performance would look like so yeah. we are actually here project we have a screen so that we can see ourselves what's going on but we can also have the image like large and i think that's probably one of the most important thing that for me to have in the studio like the possibility at times especially when you work you know with the digital images that then you want to present as a projection have the possibility at times to actually test it. I mean, that's actually the moment where that digital image goes back into the physical world and you experience it. So you, I, I think it's really hard to understand like the scale of things. I think in the past, I didn't have this possibility. So it was always a bit of a leap of faith. Like you see things on a small screen, then you're hoping mm -hmm. and then when projecting, it would just work. Yeah. But there is, there is a bit of a leap of faith <laughs> there. So. I, I think if you want to make decision about your projection, which kind of surface you want to use, uh, all kinds of things, it's very good that you can do it inside the studio. As it is uh, that we can actually have sound coming from different speakers, because when we walk, work with multi-channel, you cannot just uh, go from headphones to the stage mm. and hope that the sound will sound as, as it should. So I think those are the, for me, the important things. And then depending on the project, of course, I have, the, you know, I don't make sort of like large sculpture. A lot of, of my installation, they are 
basically parts and modules that I put on stage for the exhibition and then just break them apart and so that it's a little bit easier to, to store them. So before Do I you reuse them in different when projects? When possible, yes. Yeah. Like for instance, these mechanical rails, I've used it in different contexts and next year uh, I'll start working on an audiovisual performance based on those. So they will be on mm. stage together with our instrument. They become other instruments basically on stage, these rails with the cameras. Those sticks uh, with the servo motors attached to it, they were like actually mirrors attached to that. That was the, an exhibition in Mu Gallery. And then that, for instance, the same installation with these 30 rotating mirrors that they would basically start rotating every time there is an, like a some, oh, I've seen that work. I remember now. Some yeah. activity uh, in on my social media account, but also they get into motion if somebody is in front of that other work that had these strings. Now, I don't know if you remember. I tried it in the studio, more or less, how it would, like, how it would look like in space. And then uh, I just recreated there and that I showed it also in uh, Capelli Tedas, in this art fair Swami. We used it for one dance performance. So I try to sort of give a little bit of life to the different mm. elements. Um, with code is much easier, like to, you know, keep, uh, keep working on the same, like, or sort of expanding like piece of like a computer program reusing parts like it's it's you it, don't even need so much physical space to you, store it you don't you you don't it's very easy to duplicate it mm. yes make it bigger having different versions of it so yeah. so so that's 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 very easy but yeah i would say in an ideal situation the studio would be a place where you are showing the work to yourself and the day that happens, you still have a bit more time before you need to show it to everybody else. That the more decision you can make in your studio rather than leave it at, the, at when you are actually need to install it. If it's that kind of work that it's not site specific, of course, like that you are not really, if it's a gallery work, so to say, or festival. Yeah, it's, it's good that you are just answering my questions without I even asking. <laughs> Okay, okay. No, oh, but yeah. this you asked about the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, okay. I, yeah, I yeah. have like uh, other questions about the studio, oh, but, but it you, was ju all right. you just went through them. Okay, like. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, anyway. Do you go to exhibitions often? Uh, I try. I try to go. Uh, not as much as, um, as I would like. Maybe the, the last I saw, it was... Uh, at least, but that's not actually very recently. Um, so one of the last exhibition I went to see was um, in Forum Box, uh, I would say a couple of months ago, or maybe close to one month ago, by um, artists I, I knew, some a bit better than others, like Tuomo Ragno, who works with me in Cuba, Yuso Noronkoski and Jonas Siren. It was very special exhibition because in a way it was an example of a group exhibition where they actually planned the exhibition together from the very beginning. 
So all in a way they were also you know curator of themselves in and in planning the 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 whole works and Jonas was working with sound with this multi-channel installation and um, Tuomo was working more with digital media but also with uh, laser engraving some prints and Yuso has very different like processes because he works all analog and the whole theme of the exhibition was about time and phenomenon that takes time some some were taking time actually in the space so things will change with time inside the space and some were just maybe um, happening in real time but they were actually um, computer program running uh, some computer code that would um, generate those images and also the sound was like this um, text that was um, time stretched uh, according to different moments of the day so it will lose a little bit the intelligibility of a text it will become almost like a drone at times and sometimes it was more recognizable so I thought it was very beautiful on top of the fact that the pieces were beautiful uh, and interesting I think it was a very good instance of uh, different artists presenting their own work but from the visitors who experience it, it just make, made sense as a whole, the whole exhibition. Lately, I was a bit involved with the, but a bit more than a bit, involved with the Kuvankevat. So there, of course, that, that those are, there are several pieces that they are quite close to me. I, I try to go to openings because it's, of course, a very nice way like to catch up with some people you know and things like that. Um, but um, it's quite challenging, I must say, nowadays to uh, be available when the, there is the opening. But of there course, there are many openings happening. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But uh, yeah, but okay. Yeah, <laughs> ma ma yeah, sure, sure. There are many openings happening. I would say that places where I go to openings, because uh, like I tend to find. Um, work that I like. Of course, our galleries like try to go to Sculptor. The work that I find there, it's often not very, very close to what I do. So I think it's a quite in inspiring because it um, it brings new idea on how to, you know, work yeah. with physical forms. So it's, it's, I feel that I can get a lot out of it, like often, because that's maybe not exactly what I'm doing. Mu in Capelli is another place where if I have the chance to go to an opening, I go. And then the new space in Hudo. It's quite nice in, uh, it's very nice actually in, um, in Teorastamo. That's also, I, I went not, not long ago. I think yeah, it was the, was the opening of the space itself. Mm. I don't know if you... I, I went to see it, but uh, yeah. not at the opening. Not at the opening. After, yeah. Afterwards. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then you probably saw the, the the works better than I did because that's also the opening. I think it thing was pretty crowded. The it opening. was very. Yeah. yeah, it was more like a sort of party than uh, an art show. Uh, but now there is the Biennale, which you saw and I didn't yet. And uh, I go I see it. You have yeah, time. It just begun. So. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah, let's, let's see if tomorrow we, we manage or otherwise uh, one day dedicated. What was your feeling about it? Can I ask questions? 
no. sure you can yeah. ask why not yeah. it's a conversation yeah, after okay. all um i haven't had the chance before to have this like it was called professional preview mm-hmm. and uh it was before the official opening for the for the public so there were many artist talks and and that was very good for me to uh, because of course you see the work, mm-hmm. but if there is the artist to actually tell you a little bit about it, yeah. it gets it gets better. Sure. <laughs> yes. So that was a that was a big plus for me. There's quite a, a walk in in the islands. Okay. I don't know if you went to the previous edition. Yeah. 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 That, but yes. Yeah. But that's the best part almost. Of that's it, yeah. I, I guess. I, I guess. Or, or, or one of the it contributes so much to what your experience is like. At, at times, I felt that you see the you go to see the island, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there are these interventions there. But it's uh, almost like the island is the protagonist at times. True. Yeah. But um, I think that's maybe. Th- yeah, and this time it w- it was more on the um, note of sustainability and and somehow uh, environmental issues, climate yeah. catastrophe, and those okay. things. So it was interesting to see how how they are physically doing uh, dealing with those issues by building a biennale. They were, I think they were trying to make like this as sustainable as yeah. possible. Okay. You should yeah. check it out. I will. I will. Now that we have it in Helsinki, we need to go. Yeah. Yes. Um, do you have some certain artists that you are uh, kind of inspired by or follow their work? Yeah. Yeah. De- definitely. Of course. Uh, but. Um, I would say one artist that, I mean, I guess it's very well known, but maybe not so much in the fine art context. It's uh, this Japanese artist, uh, Ryoshi Kurokawa, um, which I think in that, in, in the way he manages to create really sort of audiovisual entities, like pr- with projection, usually something like that. Um, so starting anyway f- from digital, works i've never experienced any anything like that like in what the, it's really like it's a, it's it created i think it creates like a language of a complexity and um, a special audiovisual poem <laughs> that um that i i think it's um, unmatched by anybody else it's also extremely virtuosistic because it everything happens like very fast uh, with impossible rhythms. Of course, he also write like creates, composed the sound, so he works together with the two. So that's an artist that I'm I'm always happy when there is something new happening because it's always like, oh, wow, that's incredible. Um, then I think maybe more in the media arts, um, an artist that I really like, but of course it's well known is this. Um, uh, Lozano Hammer, a South American artist, and he's a media artist working with technology, and I like because his pieces can be very, also very poetic, but they also have this element of uh, exposing um, a bit of critique towards the technology that actually he, he uses in the piece. And that was um, there was one piece by him in um, in this group exhibition in Emma. Uh, some months ago, I don't know if you've been there, um, in search for the present or something or, like that. Or something about the future? Maybe. It, 
I don't I'm not know. sure how it was called, but yeah, yeah I, th I think uh, I have yeah. seen that. Um, so it was in Emma, and there, there was also this work by Rafik Anadol, like this guy who does this um, super high-definition pro projection with all these swarming things, which I don't like very much. But then among the Finnish in the same exhibition, there was um, uh, Jenna Sudela, who also I like very much. Uh, oh, she has a work in the Biennale as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This sort of bowl, bowl with the water inside. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. That's, um, she does very fascinating work. Uh, very, like, that is sort of speculative uh, interspecies or imaginary species and imaginary languages. Uh, like, and so that, that was very good. And then, of course, another artist I, I really like and also I'm working with him nowadays, so I also know more about what he's doing. Uh, it's Temu Lehmus Russo, and now he has also opening a show in uh, uh, Pori for for Pori Art Museum, but it's actually like a site-specific work because Pori Art Museum is now in renovation, so he actually built this sort of pavilion in uh, in this park. I worked for him for that piece with the um, sort of projection inside the, inside the space. And um, his work is it's very much art and ecology. In this piece is working very much with, you know, the soil, try to, through the use of data and um, making them experiential, creating connection or a remind, like reminding us sort of this sort of connection between us and what's happening in the soil. It's another thing if you actually manage to discuss like with somebody about their intention rather than just mm. see the work as such. It, although the work can be completely, you know, revealing all the intention that are behind but but it's just i think nice it, it adds it adds when it, there it, is it, uh, it, it adds it adds and, and and i think it's also it's almost that the work has done all the work that it should do like it's um, it also created a moment of relationship between two humans physically which i think it, mm. it's a very i think that sharing i think maybe that's one of the reasons why at least i do what i i do that you know, you want to share your intention, your subjectivity through artistic decisions, but uh, then um, it also gets to the point you actually encounter other people to share, you mm, know, what, yeah. what your intention, a bit like now. Yeah. Um, by the way, yeah, uh, the podcast now has a website, the visitpodcast.com. And then there is a page with all of these recommendations from all of the guests. So I'm just feeling nice. So, so yeah, it, so because sometimes somebody might hear the name, but not. No, of like course, of course. That's, fully, that's but really I'm going to write everything down there. Super. So I look forward it. to yeah. check it out then. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Okay, well, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you. Roberto thank for this time. And, uh, thank you, Leda. Yeah, good luck with the exhibition that's coming. Yes, thanks, thanks. You're all welcome to the exhibition on the 15th Swamen Linna Galleria. I hope this episode comes up before on time. that. Okay, okay. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> yes. But yeah, yeah. Good luck with everything. Thanks, thanks. <laughs>